Welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. I'm at the Miami Book Fair today with returning guest, Janine Kepo-Cousset. She was first on the show back in 2016. Welcome home, Janine. Thank you. Thank you, Marva. It's great to be home. Back in September, you published a book of essays called My Time Among the Whites, Notes from an Unfinished Education. Through these essays, you describe various experiences you've had as a Cuban-American where you were made to feel like an unwelcome outsider. Before this, you had published a short story collection and a novel. What made you want to step out of the world of fiction and write these very personal, true essays? You know, that's a great question. And I have to say, I entered into the world of nonfiction somewhat reluctantly. I, my passion is and I think always will be writing fiction. I love writing novels and sort of being immersed in that story uh, or in, in a story. But this book kind of came uh, as a reaction to the 2016 election and sort of have, realizing that I was someone that having grown up in Miami as a light-skinned Latinx woman and specifically a Cuban-American woman, I got to sort of be part of a dominant group in Miami. And then when I left Miami, that dominance, you know, I was now not anymore I was no longer part of a dominant group, and it started to make me think about what it meant to be white, and that if if we define whiteness as belonging to a dominant group, then in Miami, the Cubans get to be, light-skinned Cubans get to be a kind of white. And this was something that I'd always sort of like thought about and, and known, but I hadn't really explored in writing yet, right? And how to, and how this sense of having uh, having white privilege and then losing it, and then sort of always getting it back again whenever I come back home, that that could be a useful thing for white folks who were trying to figure out in the aftermath of the 2016 election how someone who extols the tenets of white supremacy could have been elected. Um, I thought I had, I, I, I was like, I have some thoughts, uh, y'all. Like, I have some ideas maybe why that happened. Um, so the book kind of came as a response to the election and from a, from a space of, like, compassion and understanding of trying to unravel or unpack some of the systemic oppression that makes its way down into people's everyday lives. So several of the essays are based on my work for the New York Times as an opinion columnist. Um, So they sort of started, those were seeds for essays, and then several of them are brand new pieces that only appear in the book. Well, in several of your essays, you write about your parents uh, who were Cuban refugees and what they wanted for you as an American. They wanted you to have a better life, so they made several choices that were all designed to give you this American dream. And one of the funnier stories you tell is about how your name came from a beauty queen. They didn't want you to have a name that would immediately identify you as someone who was non-white. How much of your childhood would you say was, uh, was marked by their attempts to help you sort of pass, as you just mentioned? Yeah, I remember being really confused because there were there weren't a lot of markers in our day to day lives of assimilation. Uh, we ate Cuban food. We listened to Cuban music all the time. We, you know, I grew up very close to my grandparents. They were always in our house. So was my uncle. People were always sort of visiting. We were a little bit of an updated version of Que Pasa USA, you know, that beloved show from the seventies. So, I it seemed like they thought it was sort of like the name would be enough, and. Um, and that, that was really the their, their their sort of big move towards assimilating. But they still spoke Spanish to me. I still like Spanish was still my first language. So it's weird. It, it's it was it's sort of this big choice that impacted how the world would see me, but didn't really change how 
our like our day-to-day lives or how my upbringing like which was still very much grounded in a Cuban heritage and so it was strange living in between those two spaces of sort of not always knowing if people were reading me as as a Cuban woman when I would leave my home although I should say my parents pronounce most of the time pronounce the name Janine they don't say Janine um, and the first time I, re- I heard that that pronunciation forcefully and regularly was when I went to kindergarten where I had an American teacher um, a, a, she was an African-American woman and she sort of saw I remember I remember very vividly her seeing my name on the roster and like was pausing over it and then going Janine and it was like oh that's my name now and I didn't immediately respond because I was like well she didn't say Janine so I don't know if that's me but then nobody else said anything so I was like the process of elimination it must be me uh, and, and so yeah that was that's that telling stories like that of how very small choices even I mean it's a huge choice what you decide to name your kid but how that choice can be impacted by all these other things um, that go back generations in history and so for them having grown up in the United States with name with the names Maria and Evaristo they they felt they had encountered certain kinds of prejudice based on those names um, coming of age in the 70s here in in the United States uh, and in Miami and they thought well let's just avoid all that for her or they thought they could at least you write about an experience you had in college where you wrote a short story about a character who, whose parents named her very similarly to how you were named, uh, you know, based on a beauty queen. And none of the other classmates, they didn't believe it. They didn't think it sounded believable at all. And they were just sort of, you know, criticizing the story harshly. How much does that speak to what I guess you would call writing while brown. I mean, you, you talk about that elsewhere in the book, too, about these classroom situations that are, can be very fraught. Yeah, and I, I, I do want to give the caveat that I teach creative writing now, and I completely, I feel very strongly that just because something really happened doesn't mean it can be convincing in a short story. What this, So, you know, just because that really, that is the basis of what happened, it's very possible that I did not pull it off in a short story and that my classmates were, skil- were still skeptical. What they were skeptical about, though, was such a strange thing. They were like, well, we don't believe that this family would want to give the child an American name. Why wouldn't they want to honor their own heritage with the naming of their child? And they wanted, they sort of wanted the story to pander to a white gaze. They were like, well, we want to hear them. If things are so bad for them, we want to hear about the racism they experience in their job. We want to hear about these, you know, all the, all the, did their boss say something to them? Did they get fired? They wanted things to be in the story that weren't part of the world of the story. The story is about a couple trying to decide what to name their kid while they watch television. And they were like, there need to be scenes of his boss, like him overhearing his boss call him derogatory words. And it was just so clearly, I mean, the the class was all white. I was the only non-white student in the class. But it was so clearly this idea that like racism is always very overt. Racism is always really obvious, right? Racism is book burning, right? Like racism is uh, lynchings. And it is those things, but it's also these smaller microaggressions of learning someone's name ahead of time and making a bunch of judgments based on what you think you know. And they were sort of perpetrating that in that moment, right? They were saying like, well, when people experience racism, it's my understanding as a white person that they talk about it constantly. And um, that just wasn't an accurate, that wasn't true. Even though we're writing fiction, it, it, that wasn't accurate. And so it was, I wasn't sure what to do with the criticism because it was very possible that the story wasn't convincing 
for other reasons. Maybe the level of detail wasn't thorough enough. Maybe the pacing was off. But none of the questions were, none of the things the students brought up were about craft or about the writing itself. They were about sort of the politics of the story and where they felt excluded as white readers because they weren't let inside to this life um, to their satisfaction, right? So you, you mentioned writing while, while brown. I feel like a lot of times, or it's, it's my understanding a lot of times because most creative writing workshops are predominantly white spaces uh, that writers of color often have to do a lot of translating. And the assumption is that the writer, that the reader of any story is going to be a white person when I know I don't write from that position, and I don't, I don't think most writers of color, I don't think most writers think about what who their audience is necessarily when they're in the process of creating. I think they're just trying to follow the sense of creativity and see where a story leads them. Um, so there's this extra burden placed on writers of color to translate their stories to a majority white audience when they might not really be thinking about that audience when they're creating the piece. You say that your parents are amazed that you're making your living in a way that celebrates your heritage rather than hiding it. They didn't see that coming. That wasn't something, you know, they saw as a possibility. You also mentioned that your sister gave her daughter a Spanish name and your mom thinks that means it, it's, it's okay now. It's more acceptable. It's, it's she, that's not going to cause her problems down the line. Do you think that sort of speaks to a shift in acceptance now of multiculturalism or do you think she might just be overly optimistic i think she's just lived in miami her whole life and has only visited me in nebraska once and all the places that my parents have for the most part ever visited in the united states it's to visit me because i've lived in seattle and minneapolis and los angeles and um Champaign, Illinois, and now in Lincoln, Nebraska. I've lived in all these different places um, that are predominantly white cities, and they sort of visit me for a few days, and we hang out in my apartment and take them to a couple breweries or something, and then they then they leave. So um, I think it speaks to the power of whiteness, that as light-skinned Latinas in Miami, they know that they can get, or there's a strong feeling that you can give your child a Spanish name and they're going to be safe. But when my sister visited me in Nebraska, uh, my niece was six months old, and it all, like, she just got so, people couldn't pronounce the name. I remember we took her to um, an office building, and they were like, oh, what's what's her name? And my sister was like, Paloma. And the woman was, oh, she was a white woman, and she was just like, what? And she was like, it's Paloma. And she was like, well, I've never heard that name. What does it mean? And it immediately became a thing of like, now you have to explain yourself, right? And my sister was sort of taken aback. She was like, it means dove, right? And, and, and then I sort of said, like, yeah, it's like dove or pigeon. And then the woman said, pigeon? Man, I sure hope you didn't give her the middle name, poop. You named your kid pigeon poop. She, she's just turning the name into a joke, right? Same thing happens we, my, when my sister leaves. We go to the airport. And she has to have a plane ticket. And the woman at the counter cannot say my niece's name. She's like, palomi, palomo, palomo. And my sister was like, it's Paloma. Like for her, that's like not for all of us. I think down here, like Paloma is, you know, it's some easy consonants and some vowels and they, it makes sense. It's not. Whereas, you know, a lot of my students in Nebraska have Czech last names where all these consonants are next to each other. And I really struggle with those names. Right. So it shows how much names depend on context. And it just shows how much the context has shifted in Miami that in the early 80s, my parents thought that to make my life more comfortable, they should give me an American name 
that would not that does not reveal my ethnic heritage and by you know 2016 which is when my niece was born um my sister actually i think in a little bit of a response to her own very american name her name's kathleen uh very irish name which is <laughs> that's that's not really in our background at all um as a response to her own name was like i want a name that my that my you know people will know uh, a sense of where my daughter came from just from her name um, I don't think my sister ha knows where my niece will land someday, right? And so it's very possible that she'll live somewhere where a name like Paloma is a very, like, will read as a very strange name to the people she's around. Uh, but I know, I, you know, when we name, when we, when we name things, when we name, when people are given names by other people, I don't think there's ever an assumption that life will be so radically altered that those names will read as strange. Um, in Lincoln, where I live now, there's a huge um, Iraqi population of Iraqi refugees. Um, and you you know that when the, the parents of the students that I have now gave their kids those names, they never thought they'd be sitting in a classroom in Lincoln, Nebraska someday, right? There was no way they could have predicted that and safeguarded it against any racism they might encounter via their names by giving them like names that would have read as white. There's no way they could have known. So I, all this book is trying to do is give people a chance to maybe think about things they've never thought about in different terms. In one of your essays, you write about how fraught it was to choose a DJ when you were getting married. Mm -hmm. You were uh, marrying a white man you had met at college and you wanted his family to feel comfortable at this wedding that was going to be in Miami. And you also knew that whatever happened at your reception would stay with them and it would mark this is what a Latinx wedding is like and they would always remember that. Was there ever a time when that pressure you felt to make white people more comfortable, which I guess most people would say was understandable in that case because they were going to be your family at that point, but did that ever come a, um, play a role in your writing that you thought about how white people might perceive something you were writing? At the very beginning of my time as a writer, um, and I would say in college classes where I was in predominantly white spaces and getting feedback from mostly white instructors, white students, absolutely. I look back at some of that work, because I save everything. I'm like, I mean, I'm not a hoarder, but borderline with the writing stuff. Like I have every copies of like every manuscript I've ever gotten feedback on. And I look at those stories and I don't recognize the writer there because all the characters have really sort of like unmarked names like I'm trying to th it, it's like it, names that I never encountered in my life I, I would have a character name like um oh I can't remember right now off the top of my head but they would have they would be like Susie <laughs> like it's just like like things that felt like very generic names and I was trying to mask it because I thought well this will make the story too hard to understand if I write about who I'm actually who I actually am or where I'm actually from my classmates won't understand the story and so the way that I would try to do that was just to make the story as generic as possible. And they were awful. They were just the worst stories um, because there was nothing real about them. There was nothing specific. And, you know, with writing, the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes because the specificity is what evokes the feeling in the reader. And then we're like, oh, this is a feeling I've had before. And that's why I can identify with this moment. When something's really vague or general, it won't evoke the feeling either at all or as strongly and then you can't identify with it even though it might be something more in line with your own experience so that was really the only time um i have to say i don't think too much about audience these days because 
writing for me first and foremost is a is an experience of happiness and pleasure and joy and that the process of writing a book is is like far more enjoyable than the process of promoting a book really uh, because then you you're no longer you're not really writing this is we're talking about writing and that's a very different it's a very different uh, skill say than um than actually writing and so it wasn't until I had my first I had um, a Chicana professor at Cornell who saw what I was doing and she recognized something of herself in the way I was trying to survive in a creative writing workshop and she was like you have to write the stories that you want to read you have to write the stories that you wish you'd had seen growing up and I know there you know oftentimes writers from marginalized backgrounds will say well I never had these stories and I'm learning now those stories existed we just didn't have access to them because those weren't the household names those weren't the stories that were being put on reading lists for our high schools so I think it's important that we pay, that we acknowledge those writers who came before us and who were struggling in a, in, a, in a publishing world and in a literary marketplace that saw no value in what they were doing. But those stories were still out there and we're standing on their shoulders now as writers that are coming up after them. Um, and it's our job to find them and bring their work back to light, to light, you know, right? if, especially if it never got its, t- its due in its time. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of, once this writer, her name is Elena Viramontes, and she's the author of a book called Under the Feet of Jesus, which is one of my favorite, favorite novels. And I think it should be required reading for every American. And it's timeless. Even though she wrote it um, in the, it came out in the late 90s, it's still talking about the like environmental factors and uh, migrant labor. And it's set in the Central Valley in California. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. And really short, too, if you're looking for a short read um, as, a, as the end of the year is coming. Um, and get your, your books in. It's a wonderful book. And she she just was like, you have to write the stories that you wish you'd seen and you know, write about the people you know. You know, make you're making it up, but write about the community you know and love. And that's when writing became really wonderful and fun and a way to alleviate homesickness, which I have felt really since moving away from Miami for college. It's kinda never really left. And it it's a pretty productive uh, emotional source for me, homesickness. In these essays, you discuss the pitfalls you faced in all white or nearly all white spaces. And one of the places you mention is Disney. You say it promotes a white heteronormative fantasy, yet you're still drawn to it. Do you see your writing about it as a way to sort of reconcile those feelings? I, I would hope so. Um, reconcile is, I don't know if that's the right word or the word I would use, but it's pro- it probably is the word I would use because I couldn't. I can't think of a better one right now. I think it's important for us to, especially in this time, right, culturally, and when we're looking at the way our um, politics are sort of unfolding, to sit with complexity. And that things are not, things are a lot thornier than we want them to be. There's no, the, the, the idea of like something is good or something is bad, it's sort of like it's good and it's bad, right? It's not a but, it's an and. And as much as um, there are all these problems with Disney World, it is also something that was a huge part of my childhood, and I think a big part of a lot of people's childhoods, especially if you grow up in Florida and you can get there for cheaper. Um, it's interesting now living in Nebraska, people talk about Disney World as a place they've been once or twice, and that it, it's this huge marker in their life. And that's part of what made me want to write the essay, because I think we... Uh, as Floridians have a different like access we can have a different access point to it because of the deep discounts that they give Florida residents 
Um, so that, yeah, in exploring that essay, I want, or in writing that essay, I wanted to sort of explore how you can love something that is bad for you, and how important it is to to recognize once it's bad for you, how important it is to limit your exposure to it, that you can still hold a deep sense of nostalgia and affection for something, while trying not to continue to perpetrate the badness of it on future generations. And so that's why I, I think I I have to, I'm going to say I started writing that essay because I thought I'm going to write an essay that's going to get Disney to give me like free annual pass for life. Like I, that was totally my goal. And I very much failed uh, by the end of that because it, I was like, I love Disney World and I want to go uh, whenever I'm back in Miami. I just like, let's go to Disney for like a weekend or something. And, we, and now I'm like, no, I can't. In good conscience, like give them my money anymore because well, for, mostly for like environmental factors. That's the big thing right now. Um, there are a whole host of reasons why they're troubling, and I understand that for a lot of families, it's a it's a wonderful vacation that there aren't a lot of times where a family can be together. You know, during like the, or they might feel like this is our chance to really bond as a family. This is our chance to have an experience and make some memories. And so it's important to see like how has Disney created that right how have they created a sense that they're the place to go to build your your family memories rather than you know a national park um which i even even i say there's a part of me that like yeah because a national park is so fun compared to like rides so you see how it's i don't know i they the reconciling i think is impossible and so i would say it's an essay about how it's impossible for me to reconcile these two things and i sort of leave the essay um well i don't want to give away the ending but the, if it started from a place of trying to get a free lifetime pass Disney World, it ended emotionally for me in a place of trying to get my sister not to take my three-year-old niece to Disney every, you know, every couple months. Now I'm trying to get her to go, you know, let's just go a little less. Like, let's let her have a, an imagination that isn't being infiltrated or or dominated by an organization that is 100% trying to just make money off of her for a life, for like her whole life. So let's just talk a little bit now about the writers you enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. If you could have a dinner party with five other writers, living or dead, who would you invite? You know, who do you want to sit down with and and share a meal and talk about books and uh, their work? You know, it's a hard question to answer right now in part because I'm at the very end of the book tour. So I've been talking with a lot of writers. I'm like, can I just have dinner by myself? Like (laughs) a little bit, like just in a quiet room. Um, I, 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 it would not be, I, can I just invite Toni Morrison? Which it makes me so sad that if you'd asked this question a few months ago, she would have been living. Right. Um, I think, I think Toni Morrison, um, Zora Neale Hurston for sure has been a huge influence on me. She, she's my favorite Florida writer. I named my dog Zora. Like I just, I, um, and then maybe Elena, too, even though uh, I've been lucky enough that having a writing career, she and I have become like, co- like not colleagues, um, but, but we're still in touch. And she's I, I, I want to say she's my friend, but I still think of her as this like this professor that she's like in my pantheon of great writers. Um, so I would say Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston, Elena Viramontes. Um, and then I know I got two more spots and I have I would really have to think hard about who could hold their weight with those three before. Like, I kind of want to invite um, my partner to this just so he could also be at this dinner. So maybe he's a given. Maybe he's not um, part of it. I was, I was like, you got to come to this dinner that 
because he's a writer as well. Um, so like he needs to be there to see this all unfold. But yeah, I really I need I always I always worry that writers are judged by who they leave out. Like, oh, how could you not have invited like, you know, you know, w- William Maxwell to your dinner party? And I'm like, I totally would have. But I only had five seats and I don't you know, I am so. Um, oh, Octavia Butler. Oh, she would be great at this party, right? Like with Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston and Elena Miramontes and Octavia Butler. This is actually, I wish this, I wish this dinner could happen now. Um, yeah, and the last spot I would have to, I'd have to think about like that. It feels too much pressure now to just fill one seat. So I'm going to stop there if that's okay. <laughs> okay, I think you have plenty for a good yeah, conversation I, this there. Is, this is a hell of a party, I got to say. I, I'm, I'm very nervous. Um, I'm very nervous to have this party now, this dinner party. What am I going to make? Oh, I'm so anxious. I was going to ask you, yeah. what would you serve? <laughs> oh, my God. I are can't. you cooking? Are you uh, ordering in? Yeah, I really can't. Um, I, I think, like, my heart is racing thinking about this. Like, oh, my God, what am I going to make for this party? Cause, no, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to make. Maybe I'll have it catered. I don't know. I, I've got to figure that out. Well, what are you reading these days? I know you're very busy promoting the book, but uh, as you're traveling, do you tend to read on planes? What do you do? Yeah, I read on planes, and I do. Reading has absolutely been my solace, and it's a grounding point for me. I've just been finished reading a really spectacular um, book, and it's hard to describe. It's a book of nonfiction, but it's I, I would I don't know if it's essays. I don't know what I would call it, but it's called um, the Dictionary of or Dictionary of the Undoing by John Freeman, uh, who's a poet and a critic and he's also a, he, he this book is um very much in conversation of mine like talking very boldly about whiteness and um it's destructive the destructive nature of the concepts of race and um and it's really fantastic and I've, I've been buying copies for like for professors and, and friends but it's not it's very accessible book and i mean that as a huge compliment it's not like a academic book that you have it is, the whole concept is that you're we're sort of reclaiming language and he goes like letter by letter and the idea that we have to start small if we're going to make big changes. And so there's a lot of hope in a book like that. Um, and speaking of hope, there's a book by the other book that I've read lately that has been wonderful and a huge solace is Roske's The Book of Delights, where uh, he sort of did an experiment where he wrote about like one thing that he found delightful every day. And then it's not a whole year's worth of things, but he sort of put, put together his observations um, in a series of really short essays. And so it's really wonderful. And then a poetry collection by a writer named Jose Olivares uh, called Citizen Illegal. And I was really lucky uh, to be able to give a reading with him and encountered his work through that. And these poems have just been um, like a real balm for these times. Uh, so those are the three off the top of my head. I've also been um, sort of rereading the, the work of Octavia Butler just sort of as a game plan for the coming climate apocalypse like I just feel like she's gonna she's gonna get me through um yeah so those are those are sort of the big ones that I would mention right now who have been reading lately and what are you working on these days Ooh, uh I'm a little uh, hesitant to talk about it just because it's it's not that it's a new project um I've been working on it for I had to put it aside to work on the essay collection so I'm just very excited to return to a novel uh that is set here in Miami and um yeah, that's kind of all I'm, I'm okay to say about it. I actually gesture towards that novel at the end of the essay collection. So if listeners and readers are curious, the end of the essay collection talks a little bit about this new novel I'm working on and how it's a, it's a real ambitious project, but it is uh, very much grounded in place and um, is sort of trying to write write this place into a different kind of existence, especially with the sort of coming 
rising sea levels and that we're going to be in a really tough spot uh, a lot sooner than we think we are. So I'm trying to get a sense of the city down on paper so that when future generations want to know what Miami was like, they'll have a real sense of it. Uh, but it's a really like a strange surrealist book. And um, I think it's a it will do Miami proud. Like it, it could only come from a place like this for sure. Okay, well, Janine Capo-Crusette, thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about your work. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on again. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of My Time Among the Whites on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also support Janine and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.